Welcome to Season 4, Episode 6 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host, Ben. Joining me today is Joel Warner. Joel is a writer and his extraordinary new book, The Curse of the Marquis de Sade, is out now from Random House. Welcome to the show, Joel. Thank you for having me. You're joining me from beautiful Denver, Colorado, and the Nuggets have just won. Do you want to tell us about life over in Denver? Yeah, Denver, life is is pretty good right now. Uh, Yeah, the Nuggets uh, just won their first championship and and all the city was lighting up fireworks uh, to celebrate. Summer's coming on. Uh, our most famous restaurant made famous by South Park called Casa Bonita it is, is reopening thanks to uh, the creators of South Park buying it and retrofitting it. So these days, everything is good in Denver. Okay, awesome. Wow. And you also run a little investigative news uh, broadcasting outlet. Do you want to tell us about that? Yes, I am the magic editor of The Lever, which was started by my colleague David Sirota a few years ago uh, to investigate um, the intersection of money and power in the ensuing corruption. Okay, amazing. That's so good. I'll have to read that. Is it like online or is it where do you access yes, it? Yes, yes, yeah, yes. It's an online news organization. You can find it at uh, www.levernews.com. Okay, excellent. All right. Well, before we start talking about your brilliant book, um, this is your second book. You've obviously written for a range of publications. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your background as a writer and also some of your previous work? Sure. Um, I've always been a journalist. I've always been a nonfiction writer, worked for a variety of of news outlets over the years. uh, for quite some time, I was a freelance writer, wrote for a variety of publications like Wired, Esquire, Men's Health, Men's Journal, S- essentially anyone that would pay me to put words down on paper. Uh, and I was very much, uh, I've always been intrigued by larger than life narratives, stories that uh, shed light on fascinating people and intriguing obsessions. Uh, and so this particular book was a perfect example of finding one of these great stories. Yeah, well, it sure is. So let's talk about it. Um, it's the curse of the Marquis de Sade. The book is almost a detective novel, and you track the history of the manuscript of 120 Days of Sodom and its eventual acquisition by an investment company called Astrophil, whose director is accused of running a made-up like Ponzi scheme in France. Before we get into the details of the book, do you want to tell us about the Marquis de Sade himself and how he came across this incredible story? Sure. I heard about this incredible story because I had some friends who were visiting Paris and uh, they went to this museum called the Museum of Letters and Manuscripts to see this notorious long-lost manuscript of the Marquis de Sade. The Marquis de Sade... uh, was this incredibly debaucherous uh, French aristocrat uh, who did horrible things to people and wrote about horrible things in uh, 
uh, when he became a writer later in life. Uh, and most people know him because that's how we got the term uh, sadism, uh, a driving pleasure from pain. That directly comes from the Marquis de Sade. Uh, so my friends went to go see the most notorious thing he ever wrote, this 40-foot-long scroll titled uh, 120 Days of Sodom. That was what this novel was called. They tried to go see it at this museum. And when they got there, uh, they found the place boarded up and authorities were carting materials out the front door and said that the, the owner of this museum, uh, the owner of the scroll, had just been accused of being the Bernie Madoff of France. So I, so, so I heard that and then I was off and running. Yeah, uh, and you certainly do run with it. Um, at the beginning of the book, you start with the Marquis. He's in his cell in the Bastille. It's 1785. Um, he's surrounded by a collection of wooden dildos, and he's writing this manuscript on some <laughs> strips of parchment. Um, he's even got, like, crazy goggles on. But basically he writes this in a tiny, tiny font, like, over quite a while, um, just before the Bastille gets stormed. Do you want to set up the scene for us and tell us what happened to this manuscript and the Marquis following the storming of the Bastille? Yes. Yeah, so uh, the Marquis de Sade was this essentially a notorious criminal in pre-revolutionary France. Uh, he'd uh, done all sorts of horrible, blasphemous and abusive activities with prostitutes and young people, you know, and he was uh, high enough on the social ladder that he could get away with most of it. Now, uh, what eventually did him in was he got on the bad side of his fearsome mother-in-law. And his mother-in-law was good friends with the king of France. So it, it was his mother-in-law, not any of his crimes, that eventually convinced the king to lock Saad away, possibly for the rest of his life. Um, and they locked him in the Bastille, which is uh, the most notorious prison in France at the time. It was in the center of Paris. And so he was locked away, didn't know if he was ever going to get out, whether he was ever going to see the light of day again. And that's when he turned to writing. He became obsessed with writing with the same fervor that he'd been obsessed with these kind of debaucherous um, activities when he was free. And the most ambitious and the most horrific thing that he wrote was this novel, 120 Days of Sodom. Um, he even said this is the most notorious thing that's ever been written since the dawn of man. Who knows exactly what he planned to do with this thing? This uh, it could never be openly published. So who who knows what he planned to do with it? You know, if he was ever released, because um, the Bastille uh, was sacked and destroyed at the start of the French Revolution. Saad had been removed from the prison and sent to an insane asylum just about a week before. But all of his materials, including this 40-foot-long scroll, which was hidden in the walls of his cell, um, were left behind. And he assumed, therefore, and it made sense, that all of all of his materials were destroyed. Uh, he even wrote that he wept uh, tears of blood for the loss. Turned out, however, that uh, this scroll was actually discovered in the fall of the Bastille, and it ended up uh, becoming launched on this multi-century odyssey that took it all over Europe. 
Yeah, we'll talk about that in a minute because it's fascinating where this manuscript goes over the next like 200 years. But the book itself, The 120 Days of Sodom, it's basically about four men who head off to a castle in a black forest and torture and abuse and like kill and fuck a whole lot of people for their own gratification. Do you want to tell us about the the book itself? Because you go into quite a bit of detail on it here. I've never actually read it, but yeah, it's um Yeah. That's good. You should read it. It is it is a horrible piece of work. And I and I try not to go into too much detail because the details are so obscene. Uh the love it's not some people it's been described as the original fifties shades of gray it's not it's not a sexy book it's not an erotic book it is it is essentially torture porn so in many ways original version of movies like saw or hostile because literally it is it is reveling in all the ways that that one human can abuse another human in the most uh depraved ways imaginable um whether it was through sexual violence, through uh, pure uh, physical violence. Um, essentially, the violence becomes so obscene as the, as the novel progresses, it becomes almost like a cartoon. The, it, it, the, the, you know, the extent of the, the, uh, the abuse that these four rich aristocrats uh, subject these, uh, this group of, of young men and young women who they have locked away in this chateau, far from any any attempt at rescue, uh, and it is it is horrible stuff. So, like researching this, obviously, you would have had to read this manuscript, and mm-hmm. I think that, like, even going back to your like title, do you believe like there's there's something that you know that is inherently evil about this book? It is interesting. Uh, you know, titles are in some in some way a uh, a marketing effort right mm-hmm. so you sure you look at a, a title like the curse of the marquis de sade and like okay that's that can be compelling having said that um the, the title came to me because certain learned experts were the ones who brought this concept forward including a direct descendant of the marquis de sade who i spent time with these people said this this manuscript is cursed they really and truly believe that this that this object has some curse upon it, and that is largely because of um, all of the kind of turmoil uh, that this manuscript has been associated with as it as it uh, traveled all over Europe as it moved back and forth across across the continent. Uh, now, do I believe this? I'd like to say no because. Uh, I might be in trouble otherwise, considering I wrote a whole book on the thing. <laughs> True. <laughs> well, in this uh, book, you track the ownership of the manuscript through the hands of erotic book collectors, sex scientists, socialites, and it goes all over Europe. Um, do you want to tell us about the many, many hands that the manuscript ends up in and some of the influence like it seems to have had on society, like in terms of, I guess, sex and repression and things like that? This is the most fascinating part of the story for me, just seeing into whose hands this manuscript fell into over the centuries and how different they were and how in the various ways they used this manuscript for their own devices and how it did end up shifting society in in, uh, fascinating ways. 
it moved uh, from secret erotica collectors in the 19th century. There was this thriving underground trade of of these um, of all these banned erotic books that even uh, kind of well healed uh, kind of gentlemen in France and Europe would would have these incredible collections of these uh, uh, it, and it was a kind of kind of a mark of their uh, of their aptitude. It was almost like them uh, being safari hunters and collecting the rarest praise. So we moved through that scene in the 19th century. And then in the early 20th century, it was obtained by a pioneering sex researcher in Berlin uh, at a time when Berlin was actually in the midst of a pretty incredible sexual revolution. And, and this researcher ended up publishing the first uh, official version of the novel, which he described as sex, as essentially a manual of sexual diversity. He saw this as a sexual textbook, uh, and uh, and it played a real role in part of in, uh, in Germany's sexual awakening. Uh, nearly all of which, unfortunately, was uh, suppressed and destroyed by the rise of the Nazis in the 1930s. Then the scroll narrowly missed. Uh, the German book warnings ended back up in Paris, where it fell into the hands of the major patrons of the Surrealist movement. So it became this icon of the French avant-garde and inspired uh, the creation of one of the most controversial films that had ever been created that launched riots in Paris and ended up getting banned for 50 years. Uh, and then the scroll at one point was stolen and smuggled across Europe and there were and there were court battles until finally in 2014 it was purchased for around 10 million dollars uh which makes it one of the most valuable manuscripts in the world and brought back to France where it seemed like uh the scrolls travails were finally going to come to an end but uh that is not what happened Yes, well, you introduce us to, I'm going to butcher his name really badly, but Gerard Leheritier, uh, at the beginning of the book, you introduce us to him. He's a self-made businessman. He sets up Astrophil, a company that sells shares in letters and manuscripts. Um, he's also like quite a renowned like author and things like that. He gets into the balloons, like carrying mail and things like that, but he eventually purchases this manuscript. Do you want to tell us about him and then... What happens to him after he purchases the Marquis de Sade's 120 Days of Sodom? Yes, uh, Gerard Leretier was a self-made businessman. And he set his sights on the rare book and manuscript trade in France, which is the most elite market of rare books and manuscripts in the world. This is where the biggest auctions take place. Uh, uh, in this one kind of neighborhood of central Paris, you can find ma- more rare bookshops than anywhere else in the world. Um, and so the RTA decided that this market was insular and limited because of, you know, a few hundred booksellers, a few thousand really well-heeled, uh, book collectors. And he said, no, this, this market is ripe for an expansion. So he started this company called Aristophil that, uh, 
would buy up these rare books and manuscripts and letters and then sell shares of them, shares of each of these books and manuscripts to to um, middle class people all over France and beyond. So police officers and teachers uh, and uh, and so on and so forth could purchase a share of a rare letter by Albert Einstein, a Marcel Proust, or you know, a first edition or a manuscript of of the Little Prince, and they would, you know, they would they would own a share of this thing. They wouldn't actually have the manuscript in their possession. Aristophil would keep these things, but they would own a share of it. Um, and the best part of it, according to Aristophil, was that after five years, uh, the shareholders would sell back their shares to the company. And they would get forty percent returns, according to the independent uh, uh, financial advisors who were helping to sell this scheme. Um, so essentially, uh, what Liarité did was take all the rare books and manuscripts in France and turn them into investment vehicles. Yes, and he does this really successfully for quite a long period, um, and people are making quite a bit of money, and. I think that, you know, once he became a real success, he started opening this uh these these places to display these manuscripts. And so you could go and see these places to to look at all of these books, uh, like your friends went to see. Um, but then obviously he buys this manuscript to the Marquis de Sade, and things go downhill fairly quickly for him. Do you want to tell us about um what happens to him? Yes. Uh, just a few months after the Arte buys this manuscript by Marquis de Sade, uh, the most expensive and probably the most famous of all of his acquisitions. And he'd, you know, he'd gathered about 135,000 rare books and manuscripts. This was one of the largest private collections of books and manuscripts in the world. Uh, his most prominent, his most expensive acquisition, or uh, reportedly his most expensive acquisition, was this manuscript by the Marquis de Sade in April 2014. Just a few months later, police storm into his operation, French police storm into his French operation and shut the whole thing down. And they say, and they accused Lairetier of running the largest Ponzi scheme in French history. And one of the things like that's pretty fascinating about him as well is that one of the ways he kept this business up and running for so long was he won the biggest ever like Euro millions draw as well. So do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yes, it's one of these elements of these stories that uh, it sometimes become can become a can become a bit of a fun challenge where there are so many twists and turns. It's sometimes hard to include all of them in a way that makes sense. But literally, in the midst of running this giant company that might or might not have been a huge Ponzi scheme, Alierte became obscenely rich, but not purely because of this manuscript company. He uh, he ended up. With winning the largest Euro millions jackpot in French history. Uh, and this made him one of the richest men in France for a while. Uh, now, what would happen because of all the allegations that would emerge about how he was running this, this scam of a company, many people assumed that somehow he must have rigged the lottery to win this money so he could, uh, or that he could kind of, uh, kind of launder his ill-gotten gains through buying this winning lottery ticket for somebody else, et cetera, et cetera. But after all these years later, law enforcement has never said that there's any proof 
that this lottery jackpot was anything other than a stroke of luck. Because if he had rigged Euro millions, that would make him, I know, a criminal at an entirely different level. That would make him like a James Bond level kind of villain uh, criminal, um, which would be a whole story in itself. Yes. So do you want to give us the update on where is the manuscript now? What have the French government done with it? And um, where is Le Heritier? Um, and I don't, I, I don't want to give away too much in that uh, I want people to, to read the book, but I will say that uh, the manuscript has now found, found a new home and where people will be able to visit it. And it's actually a home right in the center, in the center of Paris, just down the street from where it had been created in the original uh, location of the Bastille. Um, as far as the story of the RTA, he's still awaiting trial. So that's why we cannot say for sure whether or not he uh, this, this was a Ponzi scheme because in the eyes of the law, he is still innocent until proven guilty. So uh, he's been waiting trial for many years now, and there is some word that the case might finally arrive in French courts later this year, 2023, or maybe next year. But uh, the very fact that this is a case that involved 135,000 documents, uh, 18,000 investors who, according to officials, are out more than 1 billion euros in what they're owed from this thing, uh, the sheer scale of this, the sheer magnitude of the alleged crimes is such that uh, that some people wonder whether this thing will it will ever actually go to trial. Yeah. Very interesting. All right. Well, congratulations on the book. It's fantastic. It is just um, yeah, it's fun. compulsive reading. Yeah. I want it to be fun. That's the thing. It's like I, I know I talk a lot about this dark and this kind of kind of dark manuscript and this kind of uh kind of legal issues but i really wanted to write this almost like a thriller almost like a page turner because that to me is the most fascinating part was these which is really fascinating storylines yeah we've touched on some of like the highlights of the story but like some of the depth you go into especially about the german sex scientists and things like that and the the english obsession with uh the erotic i think it's just fascinating so yeah really great thank you i want to ask you what you're working on next what am i working on next well i'm i'm quite occupied with my day-to-day job at at the lever where we are working hard to expose um alleged criminals nearly as dastardly as the Marquis de Sade but as in the sort of horrible activities that kind of that occurred today around financial misconduct and political corruption that's taking a lot of my time but I'm uh I'm starting to get the itch again to look at the new book projects new historical research projects um uh, I can't say more now, but I have been finding myself uh, going to some pretty uh, wonderful uh, like archives, including uh, the New York Public Library manuscript room, which is one of the coolest archives in the world. So there could be new, new narratives emerging in the coming year, too, I can say. Okay, very exciting. All right. What were some of your gateway books? What were some of the books that opened the world of literature for you? Um, I'll focus on the gateway books that helped lead to a story like The Curse of the Marquis de Sade. Um, a book that was really formative for me as a as a 
younger writer was um, a book by by Jonathan Hart. Jonathan Hart is most known for uh, a civil action, uh, which was made into a film uh, a few years ago. Uh, it's about kind of illegal, uh, illegal corruption in Boston. His second book, though, is very different. It's called The Lost Painting, The Quest for a Caravaggio Masterpiece. And this book was eye-opening for me because the book, essentially, the main character is this, this Caravaggio painting in question. And that's what helped me to realize that in your writing, whether fiction or nonfiction, that you, that you can make an object um the main character that you could they could build entire narrative around an object if the object is incredible enough and kind of takes readers to enough fascinating places which is what this painting does take you know takes readers back to the renaissance it takes uh readers into kind of the world of of art forgers and i said this would be so cool to to find an object like this and thankfully i was able to do that with this uh with the manuscript of the marquita sun Awesome. Okay, cool. What books are you currently reading uh, or have you recently enjoyed or are you looking forward to? Um, I'm, I'm currently reading historical fiction uh, by Robert Harris, uh, known for books like Fatherland. It's called The Act of o- Oblivion. And it's uh, a fictional retelling of the search for two of uh, the regicides who, uh, who helped uh, Cromwell uh, take over in England in the mid 17th century and how they escaped uh, to the colonies. And there was this massive manhunt uh, and the colony is looking for these uh, for these two quote unquote regicides. And so that's a that's a fun page turner and it's very much kind of tied into real historical research. What am I excited about reading? Um, uh, on my bed table I'm finitely committed. I need to get through uh, Killers of the Flower Moon. Mm, by, uh, yes. Uh, you know, it's been on my to, to read list for quite a while. And especially with a uh, new film coming out, I, I just feel like I, I need to get through that. So I'm excited about digging into that as well. And he's got a new book out as well. Oh, yes. The Wager. I'm also excited about mm. reading uh, The Wager. I do like uh, kind of seafaring, seafaring epics, but I feel like I... I should read Killers of Flower Moon first, and then I'll get to the wager. Yeah, is it Scorsese or something adapting that? Yes, yes, it okay. looks very good. We'll take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero. We're speaking with Joel Warner. Are you looking for an investment opportunity with 40% returns? Then why not invest in the all-new BTZ Pyramid Scheme? For as little as $50, you could buy a share of one of the Market Isad's dildos. You can use promo code FORSKIN for 10% off. Beyond the Zero takes no responsibility for any loss or harm incurred by the purchase of a portion of a dildo. Market rates for dildos does fluctuate, so we can't guarantee 40% returns. This snake ad should not be considered as financial advice. We're back on Beyond the Zero, it's time for Joel's Desert Island Books. My Desert Island book, which is the books I'd bring to a desert island. How many am I allowed to have? Five to ten. Five to ten. That's a, that's a lot of books. Yeah. I almost built a shelter on the desert island with these books. It's <laughs> practical. Um, I'll go to the books that are formative for me still. So one, uh, one of the ones that 
really shaped me early on that I read as a teenager was um, The Grapes of Wrath, which is fiction, but the details that Steinbeck provides of this migration, of these people uh, moving west out of the Dust Bowl, um, to me, uh, those images shaped me and clearly helped uh, frame my interest in becoming a writer and the sort of writer I want to become. Uh, so Grapes of Wrath would be there. Um, as well as all-time favorites for me, like The Adventures of Cavalier and Clay by Michael Chabon. Um, I'm looking at my, on my shelf right now of other books that I would want on there. Uh, probably... Middlesex by Eugenides, mm -hmm. uh, and maybe Fortress of Solitude, um, and um, probably, and also, you know what I want to do? This maybe is crazy. I wanted to take a couple books that I don't know that I haven't read to, uh, you know, for the adventure of it. That you know. Am I stuck on the island with some absolute like duds, or uh, oh, or could I potentially kind of discover, you know, a true desert island read, you know, by just kind of stumbling on the right thing? Because you know, as you know, part of the adventure of reading is uh, is the unknowing, you know, is the discovery of you know whether or not something really kind of does live up to uh, the hype or live up to what uh, what the book promises on the back cover mm. excellent all right well i should let you go and enjoy the nuggets win and the fireworks and all of yes. that <laughs> yes before i do do you want to tell us where we can get in touch with you online and where we can pick up your great books and also where we can uh find the lever the lever yeah uh i have a website uh www.joelwarner j-o-e-l-w-a-r-n-e-r com so joelwarner.com and on there you can find links to purchase the curse of the mirror of the marquis de Sade at uh at bookstores around the world including your local bookstores uh you know and that's how folks can get in touch with me as well uh if they want to look at some of the more modern day stuff i'm having a hand in helping to shape they can go to levernews.com where I am working as magic editor, and uh, we have a really hardworking staff that's putting out really important investigative news stories every single day. Excellent. Well, congratulations again on this book. Uh, I just loved it. And thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Ben. It's been a pleasure. Thanks again to Joel Warner. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Beyond Zero Pod, and you can email us at beyondthezeropod at gmail.com. Don't forget to go and support this podcast by searching for Beyond the Zero on patreon.com. We'll be back with the next episode very soon.